The world is at a pivotal moment. Geopolitical clashes have spawned an intense race for technology leadership. Industries are being reshaped. Globalization is being reimagined. I'm Andrew Schwartz. And I'm Kirti Gupta. We're here to break down how geopolitics and technology are impacting our economy, our security, and, and our, our daily, daily lives. lives. This, this is, is Geotech Wars. Wars. Welcome back, everyone. Today, Andrew and I are joined by our guest, David Michael. David, welcome. I'm so glad to have you on this podcast. So David's a co-founder of Anzo Partners. It's an investment firm based in San Diego, actually La Jolla, where I live <laughs> and David lives, that focuses on industrial and life science technology companies. And prior to starting Anzu, David had spent around 24 years at the Boston Consulting Group as their partner, where he led the firm's greater China practice, founded the firm's Beijing office, and established the firm's overall emerging markets practice. In fact, this is the time when he and I met and became colleagues uh, when uh, he was at BCG and I was at Qualcomm. He right now teaches a course at University of California, San Diego, on the Chinese consumer and business environment and has lived and worked in Beijing, Hong Kong, and Silicon Valley. So David, I'm really excited to have you here on our podcast, Geotech Wars. And today's episode can really hone in on, not surprisingly, the venture capital perspective, the Chinese market, what it's doing right now, how the financial markets are responding, and what does consumer and business confidence looks like. Over to you, Andrew. Welcome, David. Well, welcome, David, and thank you, Kirti. David, I won't hold it against you that you're at UCSD. I teach at University of Southern California, so I'm just up the way, even though I'm here in D.C. Good to see you. I want to start this out from the VC perspective. Are we decoupling with China, and when do you think this began? There's certainly a level of decoupling. There's a significant decoupling in the venture capital world. There's been a retreat from Chinese venture capital firms that earlier in the last five years had a presence here and were investing in US firms. Many of those uh, entities are divesting those positions. You know, we've seen a separation of the arms of US venture firms that had focused on China. So from the venture capital perspective, yes, there has definitely been a significant decoupling. Uh, of course, there's still deep economic integration in many other aspects of the economy. Kirti, I know you have a lot to say about this. Why don't you jump in and give your perspective? David, you had shared with me, there's a distinction between the early stage we see and investing in Fortune 500 companies. And it seems like we read a lot about the decoupling in the large company context in the news. And that has been in underway for quite some times. But it looks like this decoupling has really begun also in small firms, startups, venture, Chinese-focused funds, etc. You're seeing that on the ground. Can you articulate like how far deep in, in the deep end are we on this? I think we're quite far along in that decoupling. As an example, when I really started venture capital investing in the time frame of 2015-2016, there were a number of Chinese-backed venture capital firms in Silicon Valley, 
And there were uh, Chinese companies that had set up corporate venture arms in the U.S. And the focus of those uh, you know, investment activities, much as you would see from companies from any country, was to get exposed to the innovation that's taking place in North America and early stage companies. At the same time in that era, there were major U.S. venture firms that had set up their brand and their presence in China. Uh, fast forward to today, and both of those phenomenon have really completely gone away. And, and I think the COVID environment, you know, exacerbated that even further. And some recent policy developments in China and somewhat of the collapse of, you know, high growth early stage companies in China have also led to that acceleration. Well, I want to ask both of you, why do you think the talk of and the prospect actually of decoupling is seems to get more and more serious every day? David, I want to go to you first. Well, there have been recent policy developments or you know announcements that have made the business environment in China more problematic for investment-oriented foreign companies. For example, recent tightening or accelerated supervision or intensified in supervision, you know, companies that are involved in doing due diligence of uh, Chinese potential investments or where there's more attention paid to what might be defined as a state secret means in general that it is much harder for a potential investor to evaluate an investment opportunity in China to get the on-the-ground information that would be required. At the same time, there's other recent developments like the Walking 500,000 initiative, which is encouraging the entire local population of China to engage in the search for potential foreign spies, make it less palatable to be operating on the ground in China. So those are some of the recent developments. Let me share another uh, additional perspective to this, David. So, for example, if you are selling a technology, sometimes there are some onerous requirements for disclosing information that is so far enough that it's disclosing your uh, intellectual assets and intellectual, intellectual property rights on that technology. So, for example, use of some kind of financial applications on mobile devices and what you are supposed to disclose for running those applications is, you know, secret sauce algorithms that you don't want to have to disclose. Another example is use of law, like antitrust law and IP law as industrial policy tools to support domestic champions. Now, you know, all of us recently saw the deal of Intel acquiring Israel-based Tower Semiconductor Company falter because Chinese antitrust authority, SAMR, basically didn't approve the deal on time, uh, be, be done out of time. I didn't approve it during the deadline. But that has happened on other major deals in the past, not to mention some you know major antitrust investigations that were perceived as support for domestic champions. Yes. I think the bigger picture perspective is that we have a very different set of priorities with a party in China today versus, say, a decade ago. A decade ago, China was very focused on growth, economic growth. It was pragmatic in the development of policies 
which were typically developed slowly and with a degree of consultation and consensus. There were multiple views and perspectives considered, and China also had a conscious policy of being fairly neutral in terms of potential global conflicts. Uh, I think more recently, clearly growth is both much less of a priority and also more difficult to achieve in general, given China's demographics. Decision-making is no longer slow, consultative, and with trial balloons and testing policies. Instead, they can be announced more abruptly. And then, you know, the perspectives that get amplified tends to be the ones that are quite polarized, quite anti-US or anti-Japan or anti-Europe. That creates a degree of unpredictability, which is troubling to business because you don't know whether there'll be the next abrupt policy shift or the next you know, campaign against country X or country Y. And then to the extent that the growth is not there, the upside is not there. So whether you're a small investor or a smaller company or even a large company, it's a little bit less clear whether you're rewarded for a very significant China presence. So I'm happy to talk more about those points. Well, how have financial markets responded to these changes? So I'm not an expert on financial flows, but certainly you know, the, the financial markets will question whether a company is valued for having a significant China presence or not. And so we have seen some Western companies have exited China or spun off their China operations into separate entities. A great example would be Yum Brands, which is the KFC you know, restaurant organization they have a tremendously successful business in China, but they spun Yum China off as a separate company from the Yum business in the US, in part because investors and capital markets found it too difficult to assess the China upside and risk associated with the very large business that Yum had in China. Now they're two separate stocks. It's interesting that in recent years, Tesla has benefited in its stock price from its very significant position in China. At the same time, given the speed at which official sentiment in China can turn against any particular company, the position that Tesla has there may be seen by some as quite risky from a capital market perspective. Tirti, what are some of the other responses to changes that we're seeing? From the financial markets perspective, I think it's responding. You know, a couple of data points. The foreign direct investment flow into China has reduced significantly starting this year, 2023. It's been down by 87% from the previous year, Andrew. And the latest data that came out beginning of this month, we saw that there was a pretty significant divestment of Chinese stocks from foreign stock owners around 40% of the total value of the stock market from the beginning of the year. So we are seeing the financial markets respond in this direction. It's a strong signal. David, obviously we've seen a lot of headlines recently, but what are the consumer and business confidence like in China right now? Thanks, Andrew. I think that confidence is troubled both with consumers and businesses at the moment. We've seen that the rebound that was hoped for post-COVID has not played out 
into strong economic growth or consumer sentiment. We've also seen that youth unemployment is at a sufficiently unacceptable level to uh, you know, have its reporting suspended. And my sense anecdotally is that has created a, a lack of confidence among consumers. We also see that you know commentators on the Chinese economy recently are seeing that everything is flat and that we might even be looking at a recession in China in the coming months. I think business sentiment perhaps has been boosted somewhat recently, but is still concerned about the economic outlook and access to capital and the regulatory environment for smaller uh, companies. Kirti, what are your thoughts on that? And David covered it well. I think, you know, you've seen projections of uh, GDP growth of 3% now uh, per year from China instead of, you know, the historic 6, 7, 8%. And by the way, this is bad news for the global economy, because in the past recessions, China has been the silver lining, helping the global economy out of those recessions. And <laughs> right now we are seeing a pretty significant slowdown in China. So what are some of the additional costs of decoupling uh, amidst all of this turmoil that we're seeing? So I think the, the decoupling trend that we see is unfortunate for the global economy. I think from the perspective of China's own development prospects, one very important driver is for China to be able to continue to develop its productivity, and in particularly the productivity of the workforce, especially given that the demographic trends are such that the workforce is not growing substantially. And so you need to grow the productivity of the workforce. Typically, a, a workforce increases productivity when there's a market-based allocation of capital and when there's a diversity of different types of employers so that the talent can migrate to where it can have the biggest impact and also so that people can learn. And so global exchange being able to study abroad, being able to work for foreign companies as well as domestic, being able to learn you know, the cutting edge techniques and ways of, of working, that is fundamental to an economy. And so any policies that limit the opportunity for the workforce to increase its productivity uh, is going to limit the economy. That is detrimental both to China's own prospects and to you know the global economy which you know seeks to provide uh, solutions and and to serve China as a market I think the uh, decoupling in areas of global innovation are also detrimental you know if you're if you're wanting to develop a new pharmaceutical or a new therapy, you really want to be able to have early access to patients in China and to collaborate with pharmaceutical companies in China because you can't develop a therapy unless you get access to clinical trial participants who come from diverse populations. And so, you know, that kind of loss of cooperation in areas like healthcare and pharmaceutical development is a pity. Similarly, joint efforts related to sustainability, clean technology, et cetera, are all areas that will suffer 
as the polarization uh, continues. You know, David, I've kind of been dancing around this topic, the whole discussion, but I think what I really want to ask you is, has authoritarianism really caused China's economic crisis? And what are the implications going forward? Well, I think all I can really observe is the the evolution of policymaking in China over time. And just to note that at the moment, policymaking is less, less transparent, a bit more abrupt, and is certainly in support of a set of objectives that, uh, you know, aren't always necessarily welcoming to foreign business. And that just, you know, puts foreign business in a different situation than it has been in historically. I would, I would think that measures that would uh, reassure foreign business would be seen as very positive, and, and no doubt those things have been discussed. We do see both a different policy environment in China versus some years ago, but we also see just different underlying growth drivers, particularly driven by demographics, as being different today than they were you know, a decade ago. Uh, at, at the same time, you know, China is as big a market as it's ever been. And so China is as important to the global economy as it's ever been. It has not shrunk and it has continued to, you know, in general, grow faster than the global economy. So, you know, it's an extremely important part of the global economy. I think we all hope ways will be found to continue that integration. Kirti. Your thoughts, Andrew. This, uh, <laughs> I, you, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, that's the ideological war question: who's right, who's wrong in this ideological war? Is there a big economic cost because of authoritarianism? You know, I, uh, the way I see it, Andrew, I think that tensions have been brewing for some time, and now they're reaching ahead. And it's a pity for both sides. You know, it's a, it's a loss on the table for everybody. What David was just articulating, a loss in innovation and productivity in many of these variety of areas is a global loss. This idea that we need to increase productivity is a global issue because not just China, but in the United States and Europe also, we are seeing a shrinking in the working age population. <laughs> we need global solutions. Uh, and I see cost of decoupling to be enormous for everybody. You know, there are some reports out there, Andrew. There's a 2021 report by Chamber and the Rhodium Group that tinkers around with the numbers and say that depending on how fast and far tariffs go, U.S.-China trade can produce losses of up to 200 to $50 billion between the next five, seven years. Um, Bloomberg has run some similar numbers. Uh, that's significant loss on the table. And if we can find ways to mitigate it by reducing the standoff, uh, I think we all stand to gain. I've seen reports recently that foreign tourism into China, excluding cross-border traffic from Hong Kong, that foreign tourism into China is down as much as 90% today from the pre-COVID environment. And you know that's a, that's a pity uh, because that leads to further you know person to person decoupling and further uh, loss of understanding of the you know the reality of of China today and uh, it's it's difficult to see when that will come back and I, and I hope it does. 
Well, it's really difficult to see when it will come back. People have a, a, a very you know long memory of people being stuck in China during COVID and not being able to get out, being locked in apartments. Some people, you know, sadly dying in their apartments. So mm -hmm. it's it's a tough sell to get anyone to travel to China right now for fear that um, something might arise again where they'd be detained, isn't it? Well, I think more recent concerns have been around the surveillance of, of people visiting China, at least as, as in reports that we would have read. To both of you, given all that we've talked about with decoupling, what are the things that you think we need to be watching um, in China in the near term? Things I would be looking for in China in the near term would be uh, looking at potential policy responses to the issues that China is working through currently that relates to efforts that might spur employment, efforts that would help resolve uh, some of the debt issues in the property sector, and potential measures that would build confidence of the foreign investment community into China. And you know, let's let's see what happens in that regard. Thank you, David. And Andrew, bringing this back to geotech wars, as we know, and we've discussed in previous episodes, there is this competition going on for tech leadership in semiconductor chips, in AI, quantum compute, all these different technology areas. So uh, I'm monitoring, and I think we all should be monitoring what are China's responses? What are the policies the country is adopting? And more importantly, when US is coming up with its own policies towards China, like export controls or restrictions on FDI flow to China, what are the country's responses to that, whether they're direct or indirect? I wanna thank both of you today um, for these thoughts and observations about China. I know it's something that we're gonna keep talking about on this podcast. David, you've really given us a whole lot to think about. So thank you very much. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into Geotech Wars. You can listen to more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Don't forget to rate and review us. Until next time.